You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I just got back from a week of vacation, and before I left on vacation, a, a friend of mine had sent me a a post on Facebook from a group called Orion Planning and Design, and it showed a mall being retrofitted. And uh, his lament to me, which I forwarded on Facebook, was, "Is this really success?" And I can't remember how I worded it, but it it, it wasn't very nice. It wasn't very kind. <laughs> the head of Orion Planning Design, Bob Barber, got a hold of us at Strong Downs and said, hey, there's more to the story here than, than what you guys have suggested. And, and I appreciate that. Uh, and I thought, well, let's have him on and let's talk about it. I, there's a lot of deep issues here. There's a lot to discuss. And I certainly think, you know, more than a flippant Facebook post can describe. So we've invited Bob on and he's on the line with me now. Bob Barber, welcome to the Strong Downs podcast. Chuck, thanks. I've really been looking forward to talking with you and to the podcast. I, I listen to them occasionally. I can't say I listen to all of them, but thank you for having me on. I'm an admirer of your work and really continually amazed at the prolific nature of what you do and uh, am a follower of it. So appreciate the opportunity to talk and uh, it's nice to meet you uh, electronically. That's very kind. And I have to say, sometimes in the world, when people get a critique of their work, especially one that is not thorough and uh, perhaps a little unfair, I think the natural reaction is to get upset. And, and you actually got a hold of us and said, hey, there's, there's more here. Let's chat about this. So I, I appreciate the gentlemanly nature of your disposition. So I'm, I'm glad we could chat about it. You know, it's interesting. Facebook, it points out the immediate limitations of trying to prosecute something over uh, Facebook or some kind of social media. It's so, so limiting, and you cannot understand the context of what's going on. You're right. The immediate reaction is to let's be defensive or angry, and uh, that's the symptom of our day, is it not? It is. It is. And I appreciate your approach. I would like to know, because I don't know. I, I Like I said, I literally just got back from vacation, and I knew this was on the schedule, but I, I don't know anything about you or Orion Planning and Design. Could you just give us, give me and, and the listener a little summary of who you are and uh, what your organization does? Happy to try to be brief. And if I'm overextending myself, just <laughs> feel free to cut me off. So, I feel like you get some extra time, so go for it. <laughs> I am uh, a city planner. I started my career in the early 80s. I started it in Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta. And from there, moved on. And the bulk of my career I spent in the city of Hernando, Mississippi, as a planning director. Small town, 3,000 when I was hired. Ultimately grew to fifteen or 18,000 by the time I retired. At the time, in Mississippi, you could retire after 25 years of service. I served 16 years as planning director there. Had plenty of uh, local politics and was ready for a change. So some colleagues and I started right after the recession 
Orion Planning and Design. We were in similar career stages. We were finding, uh, you know, some of them were already in solo practice and the recession had its challenges. And so we banded together in 2011, created Orion Planning and Design, and we've been uh, working ever since. That's actually kind of gutsy. I mean, uh, not, not the time to be starting a planning firm, that's for sure. It was a unique time. Thankfully, we, uh, we were successful in getting up and running. We've been at it ever since. We're multidisciplinary. We, 80% of our work is with uh, local governments, municipalities in the realm of comprehensive planning and coding. The other 20 or 25%, we do work with private developers, corridor planning, other kinds of uh, specialized studies and planning. So we have five partners. I guess you would put us in the category of a boutique firm, Chuck. Uh, we have um, five other partners besides myself, and they're spread from St. Simons Island, Georgia, to uh, Missoula, Montana, Sheridan, Wyoming, Boulder, Huntsville, and I'm in Hernando, Mississippi. It's a hard leap sometimes to go from government, especially when you're there for a, you know 16 years or more, to the private sector and, and make that leap. It's particularly difficult to do it in the midst of the worst economic downturn in my lifetime. So kudos to you. Thanks for that. You know, I, I can recall the day we were growing rapidly in my little town, which we were issuing roughly, a, I'm going to say 30 single family home permits a month, which is not a lot in the, the scheme of your audience probably, but for a little small town, it's a huge, three, 400 houses a year is huge. It was a massive boom. And I can recall the month in, in August of 08, I believe we issued the 30 and in September we issued zero. The fall and the crash was, it was dramatic. It was stunning in its uh, speed. It was stunning in its magnitude. I considered myself a hardworking public servant. We enjoyed lots of success in our work and we worked hard at it. But I'm going to tell you, when you move to the private sector, (laughs) it's a whole different kind of hard work. (laughs) Yeah. You know, effort is tied to uh, reward, which is not always the case in the government realm. So, Yeah, I ran my own consulting firm for a decade. That's tough work. Every night, a different meeting in a different place, and especially in the small town side. I'm not trying to say working in a big city is not difficult, but boy, in small towns, when you have the teeny budgets that we have, and they ask you to do miracles uh, with dimes and, and nickels, uh, you really become very dynamic very quickly, or you just go away. The small town game is really different. It is very different. And you know, that speaks to the posting and so kind of the comments that came back from the Facebook posting when we showed the uh, before and after of the infill. We have to concentrate in a smaller environment on what are the dynamics of change. Because when we go into a community to work, well, first of all, we have a pretty robust, and we generally don't take work unless we can have a robust public engagement process. And I mean real engagement in which we ask the question, what are the most loved places in your community? Invariably, those answers come back, the older historic areas, town squares, main streets, traditional building patterns are the most loved places. And then we extended a 
the next step and say, all right, can you replicate that now in your community under your current configuration of planning and how you're coded? And often, eight times out of ten, the answer is no, you can't. It's, you can't duplicate it. And so we use things like the posting that we did to begin to get people to envision how the scars on the landscape of suburban sprawl, which are devastating, they're like death. <laughs> and in that particular image, you can see, yes, this is, this is death and this is all over America. How can you re-enliven that? And so in that particular instance, you have, you have an image intended to convey base, just basic concepts of mixing uses, of reintroducing amenity and green space, of trying to build street walls. That particular example is not a pure new urbanist ideal, and it could be done a dozen different ways. And But when you're trying to work with the dynamic of change in a smaller community with a lower budget, it's different. It's one thing to produce stellar work in the very privileged places and privileged communities. It's another thing to facilitate the process of change in ordinary spaces throughout the country. And so that's kind of what that image was intending to convey. And another interesting point here, people have grown up with sprawl that it's very, very difficult to envision anything else or another way to do it. So any way we can entice movement and reform in the appropriate direction, we want to do that. And here's one more element I'll add to this. When we do it, we want to do it in a way that is positive, is not condemning, so that we can find a small victory to celebrate and then build upon that and build momentum for change. So using that model, and it's different in every community, as you you know from your own consulting work in small communities, every context and uh, social cultural and political context is different and they're all nuanced. And so how can you respect those places in a very respectful way and engage powers in a way that don't reject, ultimately embrace them. And so that we can, in looking back on our practice, we can get into, I'm thinking of Oxford, Mississippi right now with a a coding framework of suburban sprawl in a beautiful, one of the most significant small towns in the country, and how to reverse that framework into a more walkable, urbanist, form-oriented approach. There's an art to that. There's an artistry to it that is not easily mastered, I'll put it that way. Let me ask you about the post. I'm looking at it right now. I actually went back in my Facebook feed and, and found it. And what Orion Plan and Design, what you guys shared, was a picture of a shopping mall, uh, essentially. I mean, that's what it looks like. It might be a strip mall, but I, it's more like a, a big box store with a couple of additions box. on the yeah, side. Yeah. There's another, looks like a maybe a, a restaurant or an oil change place or something in the one of the outlots of the, uh, of the site. That's the before picture. And then you show an after picture of, you know, more of a redeveloped site with uh, some buildings up towards the corner, up towards the street, uh, parking lot on the inside instead of being the, the primary feature of the site and essentially a retrofit kind of design. 
did you share this as like a sample of your work or is this a, a conversation piece? This is not a development to be constructed. Okay. This is a conversation piece to begin to reorient thinking as I was just discussing. Uh, how do you deal with a site like that that is surrounded on two sides by roads that are completely out of the community's control? Or I should say 95% out of the community's control. They're DOT roads. So there's limited influence there. And then on the, the other two sides is a concrete drainage canal. So it's an isolated site. And it's constructed under a code that obviously needs to be amended, changed, reformed. So how do you get people to begin to envision what might be there? So we pull in the elements of uh, trying to generate, a, it's not perfect, no one's claiming that, but a more pedestrian scale, knowing that we can't do much with the roads. And then how do we get an environmental restoration component going on there? How do you... What does it look like to reduce parking? Because, uh, you know, many communities are under continual pressure to allow all kinds of vast parking for big boxes, although that pressure is diminishing and declining at the moment. So an example to begin a conversation, okay, what is the best vision, not just for the site, but for the corridor? And by extension, how do you uh, begin to create a healing process? for the zillions of places across our country that are scarred in this way. How, how does that occur? It's a difficult proposition. So we get a conversation started, which moves into an incremental change, which is what you're all about, right? Uh, let's look at an incremental change. Now, if you take a site like that, and let's take this as a generic, ordinary, middle America community. And if we apply a highly idealized or a pure, shall we say, new urbanist version of the site that is unachievable by the community, then what have we done? We've probably generated skepticism, discouragement, which is the exact opposite of what we want to do. We want people to grab this incrementally. And then, okay, let's move to the next step. What are the possibilities here? So there's one lesson in my career that has stuck with me throughout. When I first started in the city of Hernando, we had a beautiful historic small town built around a town square. I was grasping for ways without a vocabulary of what is it that's so great about this place and how can we extend it, you know, in, enhance it or preserve it. And duplicated. So we had a guy come. I'll leave the name out. We used a state resource person that came into the community and assessed for us our community. And this person says in the paper, when there was only a newspaper to read and everybody read the same paper, this place does not give one a feeling of moving forward. I'm quoting, the words are burned in my mind. It gives one the sense of not moving forward. Uh, there are unkempt places throughout the town. It obviously has a bleak future unless something is done. Okay, so we had that. Well, the mayor that I worked for 
said, never bring that man to our town again. Never. And so I was chastised for that. So then we brought in another lady, and I will name her because she is a master, Beverly Main. She was the director of the uh, Main Street program for the state, and she came in to the community. So we're going to assess the community again. What can we do with this wonderful place that the other guy said is a dump? She comes in. She says, wow, this is the best kept secret anywhere in this region. You could almost feel the entire community's spirit lift. And yes, we, we do have some assets here. We can make a go of this. And ultimately, we did make a go of it. But the long and short of, of that 16-year run was the preservation of nearly 100% of the buildings on the town square. It was the implementation of a traditional neighborhood development code that produced neighborhoods of that nature. It was the healthiest hometown. We put in healthy components. So all sorts of successes ultimately culminating. And, of course, everybody's got a list, but we were very proud of our top 100 small towns in America on the Forbes list three or four years back. So all of that, you can run a thread back to one lady providing a positive comment about a place that wasn't so great. It really wasn't that great. But that approach to doing business in the world of planning yields dividends that are massive. So that when we can incrementally introduce into the conversation, okay, what can we do on this site? What is possible here? And not just look at the site. It's easy to, to point fingers and say, this is crap and it's no good. That's easy. The hard thing to do is to scoop it up and say, how can we introduce some redemption of this place? And then begin that conversation. So I follow you, Chuck, on the American Conservative website on the New Herbs. It's good stuff there. And there was an article, a blog post a couple of weeks ago about a guy. I can't remember the name of the neighborhood, but he was discussing redevelopment in his neighborhood in different approaches. And there's a quote in that article that said, we want people that plan with us, not for us. Don't bring us a blueprint. Bring us a recipe. So when you get to a site like that, this is the failing of Facebook, you know. And so this is the failure of a guy who puts something on Facebook and says, hey, look at this. And there's no way you can get all the nuance and the context of it. But if you bring us a recipe and plan with us. Don't bring us a blueprint and say, by God, if you don't do it this way, you're screwed up. It's a terrible way to approach people. It's just bad. It's bad business. It's bad. And quite frankly, in our profession, you're a member of the same professional institute I am, the American Institute of Certified Planners. Quite frankly, it's a reason planners sometimes are not held in very high esteem. Because it's preachy, it's condemning, it's judgmental, it's the suburb you live in is crap. Well, you know, there are people in that suburb, and building communities is all about people. So, yeah, the suburb may be 
screwed up. It may be a mistake of the past, but it's somebody's home. So how do we how do we wrap our arms around a rough place and begin to coax it along into a better space so that humans can more easily flourish? When I look at the site that you you shared. And you say like, okay, here's what it looks like today. And here's what it could look like. And let's have a conversation about this. I I agree that there's some sense there, but I also look at it and say, if I'm imagining what this community looks like, and I'm thinking about like the energy that would go into making this happen, this is not where I want the energy of the community focused. And I'll point to mine you know, we have the old mall and we have the old, old mall. (laughs) The old, old mall was where I went and saw Santa when I was a kid. Uh, The old mall is where my daughter went to see Santa when she was a kid. And now we've got the, the new big box strip. People, I think, would like to see those places retrofitted. They'd like to see lots of investment there. Yet we have this core downtown that is struggling mightily. And we don't have the money to fix all of this. I've tended to discount the stuff out on the edge and try to get the community to focus on the, the little things that we could do today to make this core downtown and the core neighborhoods better. Talk to me about the practicality of meeting people where they are, because I, I will acknowledge I run into trouble here because people can't envision a world where they're not driving out to the mall, right? They can't envision a world where they're not going to Target and Costco and Walmart. How hard is it? where you sit to actually inject something into the, the busy lives of people who are, are very used to this American development pattern and get them to not only think about something differently, but actually support something different. How difficult is that of a task for someone in your position? Just a quick comment on the illustration. That's not out on the edge, by the way. That's <laughs> in the okay. middle. Yeah, <laughs> We're not talking about pouring resources in out on the edge. In fact, in that particular project, we're trying to scoop, pull stuff back into the core. But some of this is opinion and some of it, well, I think it's opinion that's that's true. It's at least as true in, in my experience. So a consultant does very little uh, in the long run because they're not with the community. A consultant is a seed planter. And they plant seeds. And somebody has to be on the farm tending the crop and making sure all the stuff is headed in the right direction day after day after day. And that role is played by on-the-ground staff people, planners, Main Street people, president, whoever the, whoever the folks that are paid to get up every day and pay attention to what's going on in that community that falls on their shoulders. So there's an art again, I hate to use the word a second time, but I will. There's an artistry to cultivating that garden and planners and those responsible for it have to be schooled in it. It's one thing to be schooled in data and numbers and designs and drawing pictures. It's a whole other thing to have the emotional intelligence and the political savvy to navigate the structures in one's community in an engaging way that produces results for placemaking. So how do you get there? Well, 
I applaud what you do. I know tons of planners that are following you and they're inspired by the message of it and they're challenged by it. And how do they implement that on the ground? So that's one element of it. The professional association itself plays a role. You know, we fought for years to get, now I don't know how you feel about this and I don't want to get in a tussle over it, but we fought for years to get a certification maintenance because we had planners out in the field working off a 40-year-old playbook. I'm like, come on. They ought to be ethically obligated to maintain current insights and trends. So that's, you know, the association has a role to play. But then there are some basic human qualities. For instance, number one is long tenures. I believe in long tenures. If a person goes into the community, when they have a carve out a spot for themselves, a professional spot, they need to be there long enough for their crop to grow, bloom, mature, and be harvested. It's important that long tenure, it's hard to do in the planning world, but it's an important thing. And then developing the emotional qualities to deal with political people that are tough to deal with, with neighbors that are ranting and raving about whatever, and deal with developers so that you deliver a message to the big box developer or the big real estate company that has a preconceived notion of how they're going to redevelop the community, is there enough business savvy to engage those folks in ways that, with their language, that they understand and can, you know, reorient development models to uh, more community-supportive development forms? Yeah, yeah. I live in central Minnesota. I live in the, the north center of the country. You live in the, the south center. We are not on the coast. And the coast, you know, a lot of the conversation going on in this country regarding planning and planning theory and the best ways to approach building communities originate from those places. And, and I've found, and part of the reason why I started writing what ultimately became strong towns is, is, you know, I, I was very frustrated that those conversations didn't seem to reflect in any way the reality of the places that, that I was working for. How different is it in your estimation working in a, a small town in Mississippi or a, a rural area? How challenging is that? What are, what are some of the challenges that you face that someone working in New York or Boston or San Francisco or Vancouver or something on the coast that has a more advanced notion, maybe culturally, of what planning should be and how we should go about it. Um, how different is it working in a community like the ones you work in? What are the challenges? What are the things that you think people should be aware of professionally who don't have that experience? You know, we've consulted in, in some of the areas that you've mentioned. The consulting assignments are brief. So so the long-term engagement of those places, I cannot speak to from experience. But my perception is that, uh, number one, resources are a challenge, which you've already mentioned. Number two, there is the challenge of getting people to embrace their own communities for who they are, embracing their own identity uh, rather than importing models from, uh, not, not that we can't learn from other communities. And I'll give you one example to one of the sparks that helped us in my planning director portion of my life 
was loading up all our elected officials and all our Main Street people and all our planning commissioners and driving them on a bus up to Franklin, Tennessee and study how Franklin was doing their thing. And then bringing them back and say, okay, here's your palette. How shall we paint this place? But while we can learn from the other place, getting a community to embrace its own identity as a, a positive thing. You know, there's a reason for every community being in, on God's green earth. And so every community has a mission and a vision. And how do we tap into that? So, so the resources, you know, embracing one's own identity as a good and a positive and how do we improve it? That's another thing. And then, you know, just the challenge of being away from where the perceived action is that that's a challenge for especially folks starting out. They want to be in the glamorous places. You know, I would love to inspire people to embrace ordinary places, embrace them and work to make them extraordinary. That's where the, that's where the calling of the planner's vocation is. That's where the satisfaction of the, the work is of taking ordinary spaces, taking even throwaway spaces and applying one's skill and uh, work to make it better. So, you know, embracing uh, in that way. So I'll quote Faulkner, William Faulkner, who's uh, lived uh, about an hour from where I'm standing. And uh, he said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, I discovered that my own postage stamp of ground was worth writing about, and I would never live long enough to exhaust it. That's what William Faulkner said about rural Oxford, Mississippi in the 1930s. And so that kind of philosophy of embracing place, not being overly wild by the glamour that's out there, and there's lots of glamour out there, and rooting oneself in making a particular place better for human flourishing. That's what I would love to inspire. And I think I talked around the question. It's a tough question. It's a hard question. It's not one I'm sure I can answer. I certainly can't answer it from experience. But I would like to hear your thought on that. You tell me, what do you think the difference is? The biggest difference between working in a small town and a big city, I don't want to offend my big city friends here with this, but in a small town, you can't be a phony. You know, you can show up as a planner in a big city and just be the technocrat, you know, just be the person who has a technical expertise and you're being called on to be one person of a team who's adding their expertise. In a small town, you don't get to be just a technical person. You have to be a human being. They judge the not only the quality of your advice, but also the content of, of who you are as a, as a person. I know some people are uncomfortable with that. Some people... Uh, you know, think that that is oppressive and, and uh, doesn't allow you a certain level of flourishing. I, I think it's the opposite. I, I think it creates a, a greater depth of conversation. I, I feel like in a, the small town, you have to be, let me put it this way, and I'm not suggesting in cities you can, you can do this, but you can't be a, a charlatan or a huckster very long in a small town uh, without getting run out of town off to the next place, perhaps. You're not going to stay rooted for a long time if you uh, are not genuine. 
that's what I find both difficult about it and also redeeming about it. And I agree with that. In a smaller environment, you're going to play the professional role, but also be called on to serve on various community board. You're going to interact with the community in very intimate ways that uh, are not going to occur in populations of hundreds of thousands of people. Yes. Right. You know, you live in Mississippi. I, I've I've had the ability now with Strong Towns to visit Mississippi three times. I spent a week there, got to go to Oxford, got to uh, go quite a few places. You went to Water Valley. I went to Water you Valley. You went to Water Valley. You talked with my friend Mickey Howley in Water Valley. One of the most incredible guys that I've met, quite frankly, in my time. He's a great guy. Traveling Strong Towns. Yeah, yeah, dynamic. Him and I went to the White House together a couple years after that. And uh, I was not surprised to see him invited to that because he's such a dynamic person. I think there is a, particularly in the political environment we're in, there is a sense of of many people that a place like Mississippi is just a a backward place full of kind of mean parochial people, and uh, all they want is to drive their cars and have their subsidized life and just be left alone. And that's not my experience, but I want you to have a chance to speak to that. You know, we do have a lot of listeners on the coast. And a lot of people who do don't have intimate conversations with people from places like rural Mississippi. Can you just speak to that for a minute, the, the types of communities you live in and work in? What would you say to someone who has never been to a, a small town in Mississippi, but has, you know, through the, the eyes of social media or mainstream media or just gut intuitions about red states and blue states, what would you say about the dynamics of small-town Mississippi? I'm a small-town lover, and I, I want to make it clear for your listeners, we're working in small to mid-sized places. I don't want to confine myself just to just a small town. But what, what would be the size of a mid-sized place, though? I was told the other day that Lafayette, Louisiana was a small town. <laughs> I don't know what the population of Lafayette. I'm guessing it's sixty, eighty thousand. No, it's actually over two so, hundred thousand. So, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, I would put that in. I would put that in the midsize category. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There was uh, another list. Everybody again. Everybody has lists, but the quality of life uh, on somebody's list. I'll have to shoot you the link just the other day. Put uh, put this states desirability very, very high. Obviously, it has lots and lots of issues. There's uh, lots of poverty, and there's a rich cultural heritage that is unmatched in America. There are wonderful small towns all over the place. And so just like any other place on the planet, it has its pluses and it has its minuses. So the unfortunate thing is that we as a people stereotype, unfairly stereotype, not only places, but people. And the only way really to overcome such uh, stereotypes is to engage those places. We worked all across the South and uh, invariably we find that people's hopes and dreams for their communities are quite similar. We work in very diverse racial environments. Uh, we work in diverse economic environments. We work in places that are uh, suffering extreme poverty, and we work in some of the most affluent places around. If you can engage people 
at the right level about community hopes and dreams are similar, which we find it's not always, you know, it's not, everything's not walking in lockstep. Now, when, when it comes down to uh, how that plays out on the ground, how you implement hopes and dreams, we run into all kinds of practical problems of not in my backyard and how do we deal with affordable housing. And there's all kinds of practicalities that rear their ugly heads that have to be dealt with. But in, in general ways, people have similar hopes and dreams for their community. So, you know, I don't know how to answer the question. We live in a great place. I love our place. I love I love my state. I love my town. It hurts my soul when people think poorly of it. I want to invite them out here. I want you to come down and sit on my front porch with me. Let us talk a while and have a good time. <laughs> you know, I, I love our place. I can't deny its issues and problems, but it has tremendous assets that far outweigh those problems. You've been listening to Bob Barber. He's with Orion Planning and Design. You can find them online at orionplanningdesign.com. Bob, you, you've been an absolute gentleman, and I uh, apologize for the, uh, the abrupt meeting that we had, but I'm happy that you were uh, big enough to reach out and uh, that we were able to have this conversation. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Chuck. I appreciate the opportunity. Our door's open, so please drop by anytime. Hey, I won't come to Mississippi without uh, looking you up, all right? Very good. Okay. Thank you. And nor will I come to Minnesota without looking you up. Hey, I hope that I hope so. Come on over. I'd, I'd love to have you sit on my front porch and we'll chat for a while. Sounds good. All right. You take care. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks, Bob. And thanks, everybody, for listening today. You keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.